Welcome to Sojourn. So glad that you guys are here this morning. Uh, my name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, man, it's just good to be together as the church this morning. Every week we preach from God's Word, from the Bible. And so if you need a copy of the Bible this morning, if you don't have one with you, you can just raise your hand. We'll have a few folks uh, bring a copy around to you. We'd love for you to be able to read along with us this morning. So just keep your hand up until they find you. And we're going to be in the book of Galatians this morning as we have been uh, over the last few months. Uh, and so you can even go ahead and flip open to the book of Galatians. If you don't own a copy of God's Word, we'd love to give that to you as a gift this morning. So feel free to take uh, those Bibles with you as you leave. Uh, if you've been around Sojourn for a little while, uh, I am, have been taking a, a bit of a preaching break. Uh, I guess I, I think the last time I preached was at the end of May, so it's been a blessing just to take a little bit of a break this summer uh, to rest a little bit from doing that, and we have been blessed by having uh, Alan preach quite a bit, uh, having Sean Cross preach two weeks ago, having uh, Noah Joyner preach last week. We're going to have a few other guys preach in the coming weeks. Uh, in the midst of some scheduling and stuff, we, we just figured out that uh, this week would actually be a good week for me to jump in. Uh, Alan was on vacation for a bit and is actually getting ready to head to the Dominican Republic with a group of people uh, to go down and work with Noah and his team down there as they seek to train up and pour into Haitian leaders and pastors in the, in the church down in the Dominican Republic in Haiti. Uh, and so uh, we just felt like it was a good time for me to jump in. So I'm going to preach this week. I'll be off a little bit over the coming weeks uh, as we get ready to have our third child, uh, which is going to be happening uh, hopefully not next week or the week after, but a few weeks from now, uh, and, and as we welcome our, our, our daughter into our family so it's a joy to be up here this morning. I love being able to open God's Word. I'm excited to be able to do this. It's been a good break to be uh, away from the pulpit for a bit and just to listen and sit and, and have others preach. Uh, but man, I love being able to get up here and open up God's Word with you this morning. I'm excited to do that. Uh, before we do that, before we really jump in, I also just want to say a, a quick thank you to, to Eric Matson and Mike Joyce who both led us in uh, worship through song over the last two weeks as Evan was out of town on vacation, uh, and those guys did a great job in serving our church, so thank you men for doing that. You know, as I mentioned, we're getting ready to have our, uh, our third child, a, a little girl, uh, which I'm excited and terrified about at the same time uh, as we welcome her into our family in the coming weeks. I've got two boys, and so we're, we're excited about that. Uh, we're also still in the adoption process. For those of you that have been around for a little while, you know that my family is in the process of adopting a child from Ethiopia, uh, which we don't know when that will be completed, but we're still in that process. And, you know, one of the exciting and terrifying things about uh, having a kid, welcoming a kid into your family, is having to pick their name. I mean, if you think about that, you're sitting there, you have all this power to give a name to a person that's not just when they're a cute, cuddly little baby, but for the rest of their life. And some of you may be upset about the name that your parents picked for you, or you have that middle name that you don't want anybody to know about because your parents, for some reason, thought that was a great idea. So as we've thought about naming our kids over the years, we, we've, we've wrestled with that. What are we going to name uh, our children? And so one of the things we decided to do is to incorporate uh, some aspect of our family's history into the names of our kids. And so, so far what we've done with that is we've named each of our children uh, and we've given them a middle name that's someone else's name within our family. So Owen's middle name, my oldest son Owen, his middle name's William, which is my wife's uh, dad's first name. And then my second son Isaac, his middle name is Wesley, which is my dad's middle name. And then we're having a daughter, as I said, and so her name is going to be Emery Elizabeth, and Elizabeth is my wife's 
middle name. And eventually when we have our adopted son from Ethiopia, we'll incorporate one of our family names in there somehow. You know, different cultures, though, do different things to, to pass on family names. I was thinking about that a little bit over the last week or so, and, and what came to mind, a family in our church, some of you probably know, uh, Sama and Aaron, and Sama is from Egypt. And in Egypt, the, the way that the names are structured, the way that those are passed on is by giving someone four names, and each of those names corresponds to a previous generation. So for instance, Sama's full name is Sama Amir Dos, Dos Armanios. Sama is his name, Amir is his father's name. Dos is his grandfather's name, and Armanios is his great-grandfather's name. So each new generation is given all of those names. So Sam's kids, Aaron's kids, have similar structure of names. In Western culture, at a minimum, we typically pass on last names through the males of the family. So the Pearson last name will continue on at least for another generation because I have two sons. And my daughter's last name will be Pearson until she Lord willing, one day gets married when she's 45 or 50. <laughs> we also do stuff like give people the name, attach a junior to their name or the third or the fourth. My dad's full name is Charles Wesley Pearson III. There was a family in the church that I grew up in, and his full name is William Forrest Wagner Thirteenth. His son is the 14th. So they've continued that on for multiple, multiple generations. But essentially, no matter how we name our kids, no matter what culture we're in and how we seek to pass on names to our children, how we come up with that, what we're doing, we're essentially what we're doing is identifying a person and answering the question, whose kid are you? Whose kid are you? What family are you a part of? That's what we do is we pass on these names. And so as we get into our text today in the book of Galatians, we're going to see that there's this this important question, whose kid are you, is a question that we have to ask and answer. It's not just for the Galatians, but for ourselves as well. And depending on how we answer that question in light of this text in Galatians chapter 4 will help us understand what we need to do with that in our own lives as we wrestle with life here and now. So I hope and pray that God will use his preached word in our lives to impact us today as we sit under it and allow it to be preached over us, myself included. So before we jump into Galatians chapter 4, let's just pray that God would do that. Father, we are grateful for your word. It is a gift to us that you, almighty God, have not left us wondering who you are, wondering about who you are, wondering how we can know you and relate to you. You've spoken your word to us. And so as we open up your word this morning to the book of Galatians, I pray that we would humbly submit ourselves to it. I pray that we would sit under it. And Lord, that by the power of your spirit, you would use it to impact our hearts and our minds and change our lives because we've been here today. And I pray that for myself included, even as I preach, even as I open up your word and speak, Lord, would you work in my heart and my life as well to transform and change me today. And so we give this time to you and pray that you'd be honored by it. In Christ's name we pray, amen. We'll go ahead and grab your Bible and open up to Galatians chapter 4. We're going to be finishing up chapter 4 this morning, and so you can flip over there. 
the last week we took a bit of a break from Galatians as Noah came and preached uh, and he opened, up, opened us up to the book of Acts, which was uh, a great time, a challenging time for us as we talked about mission. But if you've been here for a while or you haven't been here, let me just give a, a real quick, a real brief recap of where we're at in the book of Galatians, what Galatians has been about thus far. Paul, the Apostle Paul, is writing this letter to a church that he dearly loves, I mean, he really loves and cares about these people. And these people in this city, in these churches, have been influenced and impacted by false teachers who have come into their midst and are teaching and promoting and preaching a false gospel. That they're adding something to the gospel. See, Jesus is not enough. What Jesus accomplished on the cross is not enough, and you need to have more is what these false teachers are preaching. And namely, what they're telling the Galatians they have to do is that they have to follow the law. They have to be circumcised. They have to follow other aspects of the law in order to be right with God, in order to maintain their relationship with God. They have to follow the law. And so Paul is writing this letter to them to to essentially rebuke that teaching, rebuke these false teachers, and to call the Galatians back to what they once believed, that Jesus plus nothing equals everything. As Sean said last week, the opposite is also true. Jesus plus anything equals nothing. If it's a false gospel, if it's false good news, then it's no good news at all. And so Paul, in his love for these people, is writing this letter to them, pointing out the reality and the beauty and the truth of the scandalous grace of the gospel. So we've seen throughout this letter that Paul has talked about the law. He's talked about its purpose He's talked about how Christ came to fulfill the law perfectly and by doing that to be able to bring about our adoption into God's family. At the end of Galatians chapter 3 verse 29, Paul writes there, and if you are Christ's, if you are in Christ, if you've believed into Jesus, if you belong to him, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. If you know Christ, Paul's saying in the end of chapter 3, then you are a part of God's family, his chosen people. So as we get into the text today, we're going to see that Paul comes back to the law. He comes back to Abraham. He comes back to what it means to be a child of promise. So let's read in our text this morning. We'll read all these verses and then walk through them. Starting in verse 21 of chapter 4, Paul writes this. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? 
cast out the slave woman and her son. For the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. At first glance, this is kind of a, kind of a funky text. Got some weird words in there. I'm not sure why Paul's bringing all this up, but I think as we walk through this, my hope is that we'll be able to see it more clearly. And as we see it more clearly, we'll see the beauty of what Paul's talking about that he's seeking to encourage us with this morning. In verse 20, we saw that Paul said that he is perplexed by the Galatians. He's perplexed by them. He says he hopes, he wishes he could change his tone with them. Now, I don't think Paul is writing to, them into the, writing to them in anger. I don't think he's writing to them and yelling at them and changing his tone. I think he's being firm, but he's being gentle. He dearly loves these people. The people who he's being harsh with, the people who he's coming down strong on, are these false teachers. But Paul's perplexed with the Galatians because he doesn't understand how or why, after understanding the beauty of the grace of the gospel, they would turn away from that. And return back to the law and seek to bring that on themselves in order to be right with God. He doesn't understand why they would stop believing or add to the true gospel. That by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, they are reconciled to God. God has saved the Galatians through Christ and God will keep the Galatians through Christ. See, they don't have to keep up their membership in God's family. It's not like a gym membership or a Costco membership where you have to re-up every year or they'll revoke your membership. That's not what's going on in God's family. Once you're brought into God's family, you're there permanently forever in this life and for all eternity. And that's all because of grace. God has brought you there because Christ has paid it all. There's no more payment to be made. So in verse 21, Paul says, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? Galatians, you keep saying you want to be under the law. You're being taken in by these false teachers. But, but do you not know what the whole law says? Now, Paul's using law here in two different ways in this verse. The first mention of law, he's really referring to what we call the law of Moses, where God has given these commands of things we should and should not, can and cannot do, how to live life before a holy God. But the second time he mentions law in this verse, he's talking about the larger understanding of the law, meaning the first five books of the Bible, what we call the Torah. We spent a a long time walking through those first five books at a high level, and that's what Paul's saying. So his point is this, listen, you want to be under the law. You want to submit yourself to the law, but don't you see God's redemptive plan of grace through the Torah? through the law, through the story of God and his faithfulness to his plans and his people. And so Paul jumps back into the story of Abraham again with the Galatians. We see this in verse 22 and 23. He starts to unpack this a little bit. He says, for it is written that Abraham had two sons. He's he's going back to the law. He's going back to the book of Genesis. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh while the son of the free woman is born through promise. Now we preached on this some time ago, but as a quick recap, a quick understanding of this, what we have here is that Abraham was chosen by God to be a nation, to be a holy people. That through Abraham, God was going to create a family here on earth, and through that family was going to deliver people from their sin by blessing all nations, because the Savior was going to come through Abraham's family. The problem is is that Abraham and his wife Sarah were unable to get pregnant. 
And so knowing this promise of God and not wanting to wait on God's timing, Sarah and Abraham decided on their own to come up with a plan, to take their own initiative to come up with a plan to fulfill the promises of God. And so Sarah and Abraham decided what would be best would be for Abraham to sleep with Sarah's maidservant, Hagar, in order to have a baby. She would essentially kind of be a surrogate for them. So he did that. She got pregnant. But God said, no, that's not the way. I said, I would do this. Sarah will be the one that will bear a child, and he will be the child of promise. And so we have these two women and these two two children, Hagar and Sarah, Ishmael and Isaac. Now, why does Paul bring this up now? Why is he talking about this here in the book of Galatians? See, these false teachers are coming into these churches, and they're trying to correct Paul's gospel. Paul's been preaching grace. He's been preaching scandalous grace. That's what the gospel is. So these false teachers are coming in, though, and they're, and they're seeking to correct Paul's gospel, saying Jesus is good, but Jesus isn't enough. You have to do more. They, they've asserted that only those who follow the law are true sons of promise. So if you want to be a son of promise, if you want to be a child of promise, then you have to follow the law. So Paul takes that line of thinking and he flips it on its head. He says, okay, if that's what you're saying, you want to talk about being a child of promise, let me tell you what it really means to be a child of promise. So he jumps into verse 24. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. Now hold up a second. What in the world is Paul talking about here? We're not in English class, but what, what, is, what is an allegory? Why is Paul talking about interpreting this story allegorically? Most of the time when we think of allegory, if we, if we understand and we know what that means, we think of a story where each element or character or, or location or situation has specific meaning and represents a specific concept. The story isn't real but it's been made up to teach something to whoever's listening, whoever the story's written for. One of the most famous Christian allegories, maybe one of the most famous allegories in English literature, is The Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. And in this story, the characters and the places have meaning just based off of who they are. So the main character in The Pilgrim's Progress is Christian. Supposed to be a Christian, a follower of Christ. He has a friend whose name is Faithful. They meet a man along the way whose name is Mr. Worldly Wise Man. They go to a place called the Vanity Fair. It's not just a magazine. John Bunyan wrote about it first. (laughs) They go by another place called the Swamp of Despondence. The end goal is to reach the celestial city. So every aspect of this story, this allegory, is meant to communicate a truth, to communicate a concept to the readers. But is that what Paul's doing here? Is he saying, look, the story of, of Ishmael and Isaac, of Sarah and Hagar, of Abraham, is that just to be interpreted allegorically? It's just a made-up story where we're just supposed to see, oh, this is what this really means. Well, not exactly. See, the story of Abraham and Sarah and Hagar, Ishmael and Isaac is real. It's a historical story. And so it has historical purpose. It has historical meaning. What Paul is saying here, though, is that it's also illustrative of the larger story of God's redeeming grace. Paul's taking a story that these false teachers are promoting, saying, look, if you want to be a child of promise, you just have to follow the law. And Paul's saying, no, let me show you why that's not the case and use this story to illustrate my point. See, Isaac and Ishmael are real people, but they stand for something. They're a picture of what God offers to us. Because their story is a story about promise. It's a story of grace and freedom. So what does it say? 
Verses, the rest of verse 24 and through 26, he says, These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children of slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. We've got these two women, Hagar and Sarah, and these two women represent some things. And so Paul lays this out for us. He says, look, Hagar represents the old covenant. That's when he talks about Mount Sinai. That's the place that God gave the law to Moses that he could bring down to the people. And so he's saying Hagar represents this old covenant, the the law. It represents Mount Sinai, where Sarah, the inverse is that Sarah represents the new covenant. And in the same way, there was a hill that we call Calvary that Jesus went on, and on there the new covenant was enacted. God gave us that, that we could be welcomed into his family through what Christ has done. Hagar represents the law given to Moses, given by God, God's perfect standard. Sarah represents grace, which is a free gift also from God. It's external. It's not something we can muster up on our own. It's a gift from God. Hagar represents slavery. Those that are held captive to the law and its demands and are unable to be met, unable to meet those demands, which is why we need grace. Sarah represents freedom. Those who are set free from the law and its demands, not because of anything we've done on our own, not because we figured it out, but because Christ has come and fulfilled the law perfectly and died on the cross to pay for our sin and shortcomings. See, then Paul makes a huge statement. It's kind of the proverbial nail in the coffin. He says, Hagar represents the present Jerusalem. See, all these false teachers are saying, look, if you want to know God, if you want to be in relationship with him, then you need to obey the law. You need to come under that. And the the way that we would do that is in Jerusalem through the sacrificial system and all those kinds of things. But what he says right here is, no, that's not the case. Actually, the present Jerusalem is like Hagar. Anyone who tries to follow the law is not set free. They're actually enslaved. Whether that's Jews in Jerusalem or the false teachers who are adding to the gospel. They're not children of promise, as they've said. They're not children of promise, as they've tried to convince the Galatians. They're actually children of slavery. Paul doesn't leave it there. He says there is a Jerusalem that is above, and this Jerusalem is free. Paul's talking about a new city. He's talking about the new city, God's city. And all who are citizens of it are free because they are children of promise, not slavery. Because see, in the new city, the king of kings rules and reigns, and he is gracious and kind and loving and faithful. In the new city, there is no more sin, sickness, death, or darkness. So Paul's point is that if you are a citizen of the new city, if you are a citizen of the Jerusalem that is above, you can enjoy the freedom of the new city now, even though you still exist in a jacked up world that's marred by sin. See, this is contrary to the false gospel and the false teachers that the, and everything they've been promoting and teaching. They're saying no freedom comes through the law. Paul's saying no, you've been set free from that. And those that are a part of the new city can experience that freedom here and now. The question we have to ask is, how is this possible? How is this possible? And that's exactly what Paul is reminding the Galatians of. It's, it, he's reminding us of it this morning. And maybe this is the first time you've ever heard this. 
This is what he's pointing out to us this morning. No one is a child of promise. No one is a citizen of the new city because of lineage, because of family history, because of heritage. No one is a child of promise. No one is a citizen of the new city because of something that you do or something that I do. Anyone and everyone who is a child of promise is a child of promise because of what Christ has done and that alone. See, in the old covenant, God says you shall or shall not. But in the new covenant, God says I will. I will. Why? Because you can't. Because you can't. Because that's who I am, God says, because I am loving and gracious and kind and merciful. And I'm a good father who brings you into my family. Remember back to Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 5. There Paul writes, but when the fullness of time had come in God's eternal providence, in the fullness of time, when it had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, to set free those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Jesus, the eternal Son of God, took on flesh to dwell among us as one of us. Why? So that he could live a perfect life that none of us are able to. Why? So that he could go to a cross and take on the punishment and the wrath of God that all of us deserve. Why? So that he could rise again. He could rise again and doing that defeat darkness and death so that all of us can walk in the life and light that Jesus brings to us. See, being a child of promise does not come about by our obedience. It's possible because of Christ's obedience. It isn't about doing anything. It's about receiving. Through faith comes freedom. See, in John chapter 1, the apostle John writes this. But to all who did receive him, all who did receive Jesus, who believed in his name, who believed in Jesus' name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. That's God's doing from beginning to end. See, to be free is to receive grace. And grace is freely given to all who will receive it. And that's Paul's point to the Galatians. That's Paul's point to you and to me this morning. Children of promise are born by grace. And it's by God's doing, not our own doing or our own effort. So all it takes to be a child of promise, all it takes to be a child of God is to believe into Jesus, is to place our faith in Christ, saying that is our only hope, is believing that Christ paid the penalty for our sins so that we can be adopted into and brought into God's family and made new. It's the only way. That's the hope and the reality of the gospel. It's the hope of the good news of Jesus But in light of this text, it begs the question for us this morning. It's kind of our first point, our first point of application to slow down, to stop and ask ourselves this question is, whose kid are you then? Whose kid are you? See, in this text, Paul lays out two women and two sons and shows us it's a picture of two covenants. And so the reality for all of us this morning is the same as it was then for the Galatians See, all of us are either enslaved or we're free. So whose kid are you? Where are you this morning? Are you enslaved or are you free? 
See the Hagar situation that's laid out here and the reality, the mentality of these false teachers that have come in to preach this false gospel. The the kind of sentiment, the mentality they have is that God helps those who help themselves. God helps those who help themselves. Man, if you want to be close to God, then here's some things you do. Start putting forth some effort. Do a little bit more. Punch some things off on your punch list. Check some boxes and God will help you then. God helps those who help themselves. Man, that's the common sentiment of today as well. Unfortunately, it's the common sentiment even within the church sometimes. But the reality is it isn't biblical because it's not from God. See, the reality is God doesn't help those who help themselves. God helps those who are utterly helpless. Utterly helpless. See, the gospel is for the weak The gospel is for the unable. We have nothing. We can bring nothing. God does everything from beginning to end. And man, that so presses on our societal and cultural values and norms, doesn't it? I mean, we live in an area where being self-made and successful and excellent gets us places. It gets us noticed. It gets us ahead in life and in the workplace. But that's not the way that God does things. But see, when we allow that mentality to slip into our understanding of God, when we allow that mentality of our culture to slip into our understanding of the gospel, it starts to poison it. So we say, yeah, I have to do this everywhere else, so I probably have to do it with God too. I have to prove myself. I have to show something. I have to follow a law. We see children born of the flesh. Every time we try to do that, when we see this picture of Hagar, it's a picture of a human attempt to bring about God's promises, to bring about his plans and purposes, but the reality is it doesn't work. It can't. It's like trying to add something to your appearance to make yourself appear to be something that's not actually true of you. If I go out today and I put on a Washington Nationals uniform, like the legit uniform, with my name on the back and everything, and I've got all the gear, I've got my eye black on, and I'm ready to go. I've got my bats and my helmet and everything and some pine tar and my batting gloves, and I'm, I'm ready to go. I'm going to charge out on the field. The reality is I'm not a pro baseball player. If I show up at Nationals Park and try to get on the field, I'll probably get arrested. right? Because that's not who I am. It doesn't matter what I do on the outside. It's just a facade. It's not real. I'm trying to do something to make something to be true for myself that's not actually true. See, the reality is, as one pastor says, whether we reject God outright, and maybe that's where some of you are this morning. Maybe you say, I don't even know if I believe in God, so I reject God completely. Or if we find ourselves on the other end of the spectrum and we say, no, I'm, I'm trying to gain right standing with God by serving him, we're saying the same thing. Whether I reject God outright or I try to earn my way to serve God in order that I can be in right standing before him, we're saying the same thing. What we're saying is is that we are independent and self-sufficient. I don't need God, but I can do this on my own to get close to God. See, oftentimes we find our value in who we are and what we do, not whose we are and what he has done for us. Oftentimes we may be acting in faith, but it's not faith in Jesus, it's faith in ourselves. As one other pastor puts it, human initiative will only get us human results. It'll only get us human results. Because when you try to be your own savior, it will crush you. It'll crush you. 
If all you hear is a list of things I have to do, you are unable to do those things. That will crush you. But the reality is, if you're looking to someone else to be your Savior, it'll crush them as well. Only Christ can bear that weight, and he has. That's the good news of the gospel. That's the good news of grace. In verse 27, Paul quotes uh, Isaiah 54, verse 1. He says this, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear, break forth and cry aloud. You who are not in labor for the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. So what's going on here? Paul is driving home his point. God has promised to Sarah that he would not leave her without a child. He promised that Abraham's offspring would bless the nations. He promised that the true children of Abraham would be more numerous than the stars in the sky. He promised his people that he would redeem them and restore them and bring them back to himself and bring them into a new city. So what Paul is saying to the Galatians, what he's saying to all of us this morning is this. The good news of the gospel and its freedom is that it can make anyone a child of God because it's God's doing not yours listen to Isaiah 55 verses 1 through 3 this is your invitation this morning Isaiah writes there come everyone who thirsts come to the waters and he who has no money come buy and eat come buy wine and milk without money and without price Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live. So let me ask you again, whose kid are you? Are you a child of slavery or a child of promise? See, the invitation to the new city, a place of freedom and grace, is for anyone and everyone. It doesn't matter how jacked up you are, and it doesn't matter how good you think you are. There's no price we can pay to gain eternal life because Jesus has paid it all. So come as you are. Come now, whether it's for the first time or the thousandth time. Come and place your faith and trust in Jesus. See, sojourn, the children of promise are many because God has said that he is saving people. He's bringing people into his family from every tribe, every language, and every nation. And they will be numerous. And it's all through what Jesus has done. See, the fulfillment of verse 27 is happening right now. It may be happening in this room this morning. If you find yourself being, man, I need Jesus. Then God is doing this. He's making you, he's bringing you into his family and making you a child of promise. God is doing this all over the world right now. He's bringing people into his family because of what Christ has done. And we get a front row seat to that. As we jump back into the text, we see Paul brings this home again to the Galatians and to us. Verse 28, he says, Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. He's making a statement of identity. This is who you are because of grace and because of promise. And it's true for anyone who's placed their faith and trust in Jesus. But the reality for the Galatians and the reality for you and me, Paul says, is that if we have been born of the Spirit, if we've been made alive in Christ, if we know Jesus, the reality of our life here and now is that we're going to be ridiculed for that. We're going to be persecuted for that. There's going to be people that are trying to derail us off of what we believe in the gospel and offer us something that they say is better than Jesus. Verse 29, Paul says so much. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. 
Isaac was ridiculed by Ishmael. The Galatians were ridiculed by law followers and accusers saying they weren't measuring up, they weren't doing enough. Today the same thing can happen. Be through making fun of you or persecuting you or seeking to tear down your beliefs and your faith or trying to introduce doubt into your life or false beliefs. It can happen out there in, in, in our culture. It can happen within here, within this community, and it can happen in your heart. There can be false teachers among us preaching false gospels, seeking to advance Jesus plus something else. Sometimes it's overt, but oftentimes it's subtle. See, a false gospel is anything that is added to or replaces the true gospel as the means of being made right with God or remaining right with God. Now, oftentimes we can sniff out the false gospel that says you have to do something else to be made right with God. What we often don't see is the false gospel that says you need to do something to, do something to remain right with God. A friend of mine, his wife at one point in time said something. She was struggling in her faith and she said, man, I wish I lived in a time where we just had the law because then I would know what I need to do. Be easy. Do this, don't do that. I can do that. But this whole following Christ and faith and seeking to walk in obedience to him, it's confusing and I don't understand it. Just give me a list. And we can so often fall into that same sentiment. Just tell me what I need to do to be okay. Just tell me what I need to do to be good. And so thousands upon thousands of books are written and sermons are preached that essentially see, say, great, you've believed in Jesus, you've trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sin, that's awesome. Now set that aside, we've got to get on to what's next. So here are five ways to be a better dad. Here are seven ways to have a more healthy marriage. Here are four ways to be happier and healthier in life. You see, sometimes we think it'd be easier just to have that punch list that we can follow and know when we're good or we're not good with God. We think it'd be be easier, but the reality is it's just more slavery. Because the reality is none of us can measure up to that. It's oppressive. I can struggle with this in my own life. I, I realize that I often can believe things like God will punish me for failure. Or that my worth is dependent on my performance. And man, that affects my life. It affects my marriage. It affects how I parent my kids. When I act a certain way towards them, it affects the way I pastor. It affects the way I preach. If I don't preach a great sermon, then God's going to be mad at me. If I don't do something right in leading or pastoring this church, then God is going to take something away from me. And that's a false gospel. It's not the truth of God's grace. False gospels either out there in The world around us or the ones that reside in our hearts, they reinforce these false and enslaving and destructive beliefs. But sermons or books or advice from friends, things that teach and preach preach to us that we must do something in order to receive something or to maintain something with God, they keep us in bondage. All it is is the law dressed up to look nice, smell nice, the reality is it still stinks because it's still death. That's why we have to come back to the gospel and grace over and over and over again, week after week at Sojourn, because the reality is week after week we are prone to wander away. We're prone to be taken in by something else, to believe that we have to do something to maintain our relationship with God. But again, the truth of the gospel and the truth of Galatians is clear. We do not earn our way into God's family and we don't earn our remaining 
in God's family. Christ has accomplished both for us. So what are we to do? What Paul tells us in verse 30 leads to our second point here. We ask the question, whose kid are you? But then what are we to do when we struggle with these false gospels that continue to assert themselves? Paul tells us in verse 30, but what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. Seems kind of intense at first, but we have to remember that Paul's using this as an illustration. He's not actually talking about kicking uh, uh, someone out in that way, a slave woman who's having a hard time. What he's getting at, what he's talking about is these false teachers and false gospels. It's intense because it's serious. False gospels lead to slavery and death, so Paul says get rid of them. So that's our second point. When we ask whose kid are you, you say, man, I want to be a child of promise. I am a child of promise, but I still wrestle with these false gospels. So what are we to do with them? We're to cast them out. Cast them out of our church and cast them out of our hearts. See, we can be harsh towards false teaching and false gospels because they're so damaging. And so we need to be aware. We need to be on guard. It's one of the chief roles of elders within the local church. Titus chapter. Excuse me, Titus chapter 1, verse 9, Paul writes there, An elder must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also able to rebuke those who contradict it. Elders are supposed to be able to articulate and teach the gospel and apply it to our lives, but we're also supposed to be able to rebuke false teaching, anything that's a false gospel. So we have to be on guard against false gospels, being promoted in our midst and cast them out when they creep in, whether it's in the form of a song or a book or a sermon or a person. Why? Because it's a matter of life and death. It's slavery or freedom. And as a church, we cannot succumb to the shackles of the law. We are a people of grace and grace alone. The reality is false gospels, enslaving gospels, don't merely exist out there. The reality is for most of us, the place they most often reside is within our hearts. That's where they have the most influence. It doesn't matter if you're a new Christian or a seasoned saint. Our hearts are prone to wander and to believe things that aren't true. Recently, I was talking with a family in our church who is uh, entering into a a, a, a difficult time, a hard time. And the husband and father said to me the other day with tears in his eyes, something along the lines of this. He said, I wonder if this is all happening, if God is doing this because I acted too harshly towards my kids. So here's a man who knows the Lord, a man who knows the gospel, a man who knows that he is God's child, forgiven and set free, a man who knows that he's dearly loved and cherished He knows that it's by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. But in the midst of a very real and a very difficult situation, his flesh is feeding him lies. The accuser is whispering in his ear, this is your fault. You didn't do enough. You didn't do enough. And what false gospels are you tempted to believe? What false gospels are you tempted to believe right now? Sojourn, the false gospels that reside in our hearts that tell us we have to perform in order to get something from God or to maintain our relationship with God have to be catapulted out of our hearts. See, right after this guy shared this with me, he said, I know that's not true. I know that's not right. The way we catapult false gospels out is by coming back to the true gospel, coming back to and returning to grace. 
We preach the gospel to ourselves. We listen to one another preach the gospel to us. And that's what I encouraged him to do and his wife to do is to continue to preach the gospel. Come back to the true gospel. Come back to grace. Invite your community to do that too because sometimes we just don't believe it. And so we need someone else to come back and remind us of the reality of God's scandalous grace. Our freedom in Christ is preserved when we abolish the law, the bondage to the law by coming back to grace. If you are in Christ this morning, you are free, period. So cast off and cast out the oppressiveness of doing something to earn your place in God's family. And that's how Paul closes verse 31. He says, so brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. If you are in Christ, you are a child of promise. That is who you are. And when you remember that, you can walk in the reality of what Christ has accomplished for you. You can walk in freedom. You're a citizen of the new city now, and so you can live in the reality of that freedom now. And that's where Paul's going to go over the next chapter in chapter 5. So you have to come back the next few weeks and just see how he starts to unpack the reality of what it means to walk in the freedom that Christ has purchased for us. Listen, sojourn, life is difficult. Suffering is real. We are going to struggle, but one day Christ will return and he will make all things new. And that is our hope. And it isn't rooted in our performance, it's rooted in grace. Listen to these words from Revelation chapter 22, verses 3 through 5. The Apostle John writes there, No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, will be in the new city. And his servants will worship him. They will see his face. And get this, his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord. God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. Whose kid are you? If you are in Christ, you are God's. It is permanent and is done. His name is written on you because he put it there. And nothing can ever, ever change that. Every time we take communion, it's a reminder to us of that reality. It's what we're refreshed in every week. Jesus' body was given for us, his blood shed for us, that we might become a child of God. So that we can come and dine with the king for all eternity. So that we can rest in the arms of our loving father. See, in the midst of your sin, in the midst of your struggles in this life, don't run away from God as if you need to clean yourself up first. Run to him. In our shortcomings, we don't try harder or strive to do more. We rest in his unchanging grace. So this meal that we partake in every week, it it reminds us and nourishes us in our, our hearts and our souls to believe today the truth that my name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. So come to the table today to be reminded of whose kid you are. Come to the table today to cast out the false gospels that reside in your heart. Come to the table today to be reminded that you are Christ's and he is yours now and forever. And if you're not a follower of Christ, as we take communion, we just ask you not to come forward to take it. And the reason is, is because this doesn't accomplish anything for us. It doesn't get us closer to God by doing this. So if you don't yet know Christ, what we want you to do first, what you want you to experience first is God's grace through Christ. So take Christ today. Turn to him in faith today, believing that he came to rescue you and to make you a child of promise. 
If you have questions about what it means to know and follow Jesus, please come talk to me afterwards. I love to talk with you, to pray with you. That's why we're here as a church. So you can come up. I'll be right here down front after the service. I'd love to talk with you more about that. Those of you that will come forward, you can come forward to the front or to the stations in the back and tear off a piece of bread, take a small cup to drink, and what Jesus did for you to bring you into his family will be spoken over you. Let's pray. Father, we, this morning, we thank you for the simplicity of the gospel, and we thank you for the enormity of the gospel. We thank you for the simplicity of grace and the enormity of grace. We thank you that through Christ, anyone can be a child of promise. Anyone can be a child of God because it's not about who we are. It's not about what we do. It's about what Christ has done for us. So, Father, we pray that you'd help us to rest in that reality this morning. And if we don't know Christ, that you draw us to yourself this morning. Would you make more children of promise here and now today? Lord, help us to cast out false, false gospels. Help us to come back to grace today. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your steadfast love for us. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.